So, uh, Wes, you caught this one. Maybe we could talk about this on the pre-show here. Uh, Chipu, is that how you say it? Yeah, I have no idea how to Take say it. Take a shot actually. at that one. Chapau? Chapau. Chapau. Ooh, let's go with Chapau. That's the most fun way, I think. So Chapau 23. Anyone correct us? Chapau 23 Beta 2 is out, and Chapau is another remake of the Fedora Project. And I normally don't cover all these derivatives, but I've... How did they... Oh, the 23 comes from Fedora. Yeah, like, exactly. How did they get yes. to version 23 without me having ever heard of it or known how to pronounce it? Chrome version on steroids. Magic. No, yeah, it's the, yeah, because they're just basing off Fedora 23. Here's why I think this is noteworthy. Because uh, remember how, like, before a couple of releases ago, like, nobody was basing stuff off Fedora anymore? Yeah. And now we've got a few of them. And uh, so these guys, uh, they have themselves one of them good-looking desktops. They've got gone ahead and made things actually look usable. And uh, like most uh, respins of Fedora, you get your uh, third-party uh, content like your codecs and your Adobe Flashes and your, and your DVD and Blu-rays. You also got the uh, curation. Uh, and uh, they say it's gaming-ready. What do you think, Wes? What did you think when you first found this Gaming-ready. You know, uh, I was just surprised I hadn't heard of it before. But you're right. I do like to see more things based on Fedora because, I don't know, I think to some users still they're just, just installing Fedora. There's kind of a lot you have to do still to make it. If you're used to something, you know, like Mint or something where you have everything installed, it's ready to go, you yeah. can kind of get whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Fedora takes a little more work. So if this is like a really nice, polished, you know, this would be good for, fast. you know who this would be really good for in like three, four or five years, maybe just a couple of years even, is like Noah's kid. Yeah, right. Because Noah loves that Fedora. And uh, uh, so BXNT in the chat room says that it's uh, Shu Pao. Chapeau. How do you chapeau? Chapeau, which is hat in French. French. Yeah, there you go. This is Linux Unplugged, episode one hundred and twenty for November twenty fourth, two thousand and fifteen. Welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show that encourages you. Come on now, encourages you to brine that turkey. Wes, my name is Chris. My name is Wes. I know that. You know that. Yes. I'm sitting right here. You've seen me before. Listen, Wes, we have a huge show. It's a holiday week, and we thought what we would do is uh, get ourselves a little eggnog, pour ourselves a drink, and have one of the biggest shows of the year. That's what we thought we would do for this Stuff episode. Stuff ourselves, you yeah. know. Everyone else will be doing it later this week. Yeah. Getting started uh, early. We did have a little bit of bird, a bird tirade on the pre-show. So uh, for those of you that are joining us live, I hope you enjoyed the warm-up session where uh, apparently I went on a complete rant against having birds. But that is not going to make it into the show. I won't know. Nope, this no. is a Linux show, believe we're gonna, it or not. Yeah, we're going to talk about Linux and open source things. And to that end... One of the gentlemen from the Vivaldi Project is joining us, a new browser out for the Linux desktop. After that, we're going to talk about Solus. We're going to have the developer of the Solus Project on here and talk about his desktops inspired by a bird's name, hence the rant earlier in the show. And then, later in the show today, listen, I love Linux, I love open source, we've all been here a long time. GIMP just hit 20 years old. LibreOffice wow. just got 1,000 developers. Big milestone. Hit 1,000 developers. But let's be honest. These projects are still not good enough. GIMP still isn't there yet. Doesn't have CMYK support. Doesn't have non-destructive editing. It's still not competitive with Photoshop after 20 years. Is it time to just admit that sometimes open source projects are never going to get there? LibreOffice, 1,000 developers, getting better all the time, but still maybe not competitive with Microsoft Office. How many developers, how many years does it take until open source software can actually compete with the commercial alternative? Or have I got it all wrong? We'll talk about that coming up at the end of today's episode of Linux Unplugged. So no bird talk, none of that, Wes, except for I do highly encourage you to brine your turkey. Well, of course. Yeah, that makes it delicious. 
Go go look up Alton Brown's recipe. It's really good. Everyone, hey, we got it. a we got a great mumble room. Time appropriate greetings. Virtual lug. Hello. Okay. I gotta know, Popey. How do you always manage to be the first? Like, what do you do exactly? I'm in your head. Okay. I mean, that's what I thought. That's that's exactly what I thought. All right. Well, we have a couple of stories I wanted to follow up on that are kind of big news that have broken since the Linux Action Show was on the air. And let's start with the first one here. Uh, AMD's got something for your face. An open-source driver. It's been released and supports the latest AMD GPUs. The announcement has been made on the Xorg announcing mailing list from, you know, obviously the Xorg Foundation. And according to, uh, I'm going to call Mr. Dan. According to Mr. Dan, the brand new XF86 video AMD GPU driver, version 1.00 driver, has been forked from the open-source project. And it has been, uh, if you have Linux kernel 4.2, which has the new AMD GPU kernel driver, then, Wes, a good batch, and I think they're in the Softpedia article they mentioned, a good batch of the current Radeon cards are now supported by this totally open-source driver. Did you see the, the list there? Uh, uh, here you go. This, it's this paragraph right there. What's that say there? Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, X, XF86 Video AMD GPU 1.0 yeah. currently supports AMD GPUs from the Fiji, yeah. Carrizo, Tonga, Stony, and Iceland families. There it is. There it is. Yeah. So if you've got if you've got an AMD GPU in that range of cards and you should be able to use this now. You've got Linux kernel 4.2. This is some pretty exciting stuff. This is some stuff that really Nvidia hasn't even gotten to yet. Uh, and it's stuff that we've been covering in the news on the Linux Action Show for like a year now. And I think we're all kind of wondering like, okay, they've they've talked about doing it, but when is when are we going to see the code shipping? So yeah. Here's another piece and, of that. And, Ike, you're mentioning that 4.3 of the Linux kernel also has uh, some more AMD GPU stuff. What's that about? Uh, yeah, so I was recently updating the kernel inside the Solus. Um, there's a lot more changes made for basically more devices in the 4.3 kernel. Um, it's going to be replacing the old, ancient, defunct driver, which I'm just trying to find out exactly how old it is. One second. <laughs> the ancient one, huh? What do you think, Wes? Well, my yeah, my understanding is that at least part of what this article is talking about is the X specific component of yes, the driver. Yeah. You know, where there's there's also a kernel part and then the Mesa part as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we need all all of those components to come together so that we can have a functioning AMD, you know, open source graphics. Stack. So this really could take the uh, the process of getting a semi recent AMD GPU from one of the more challenging processes to get full three D support to potentially works right out of the box. I wonder if we'll see more support. You know, I mean, I think a lot of people, the people interested in gaming on Linux kind of tend to skew to NVIDIA these days, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know, maybe mm-hmm. pretty strongly. I wonder if this can shake that up. Yeah, yeah. And also, uh, could there be some other work cases? I, you know, because I can very clearly see NVIDIA's reason. NVIDIA's got their proprietary driver. They have a lot of uh, um, certain types of work cases that to offload the different types of processing to the GPU that the Linux desktop is great for different institutions. I don't – AMD has those same capabilities, but I don't know if things like the uh, – I mean it seems everything's like focused on CUDA these days. And I, right. I think AMD GPUs are more OpenCL, which is great, but I don't, I don't really – I don't know what the big work case scenario is in the enterprise for AMD GPUs. Maybe it's editing. Mm-hmm. Not sure. Ike, did you find the, the info you were looking for? Um, so I had an update in 2014, another release okay. today, so that was once a year. So you can see, really, there wasn't a lot of effort <laughs> yeah. going on in there. Yeah, no kidding. Um, to be fair, it's better than the Nova driver. I mean, that's ancient, and everyone's having to use Git builds, so fair play to AMD for actually maintaining yeah. something. Yeah. Yeah, and while we're talking about the display stack, kind of uh, a fork from that topic, uh, Fedora is seeking for some testers on Wayland. 
you know, they're getting serious about shipping Wayland and Fedora 24 workstation. It's become the default option already in Rawhide, the rolling development version of Fedora. But the plans are not yet carved in stone for Fedora 24 to actually ship with Wayland, despite what's been reported by a lot of places online. Um, and really, it kind of comes down to us. Before GNOME on Wayland becomes the default in Fedora, we need to ensure the transition is smooth, says the Fedora magazine site. And the users won't recognize a difference. Now that's a high bar to set, and I'm it's sure a high bar, yeah. I'm sure it's you know it's probably the same exact bar Canonical wants to set. So we need reports on deficiencies that occur on Wayland, but not X11. Uh, and they have, and I have it linked in the show notes too. Um, they have a uh, a, a Q, uh, a um, well, a guide really. The Fedora QA team has written up a comprehensive guide on how to debug Wayland related problems. So if you want to see this happen. This is a real way you as an end user could actually participate in the adoption of Wayland. You could go follow these links in the show notes. You could read their QA guide. And, and, and I'm willing to bet this comprehensive guide is probably just good reading in general. Yeah, probably. You know what? Especially gonna, if you're interested in Fedora. I got, a, I got a link right here. Let me go see if I can find it. I'm kind of curious to see what they actually say because there, it could be – this could be one of those things that could really apply to a lot of things. So, And it's really kind of nice that they did this. So this is over on the Fedora Project wiki. Uh, how to debug Wayland problems. Hmm. And here you go. They say Wayland is intended as a simpler replacement for X11. It changes the design of the Linux desktop architecture. That's good background you know, information yeah. for you. Yeah, exactly. And so they have tips in here for uh, reporting issues and looking for similar reports, how to file a bug, information to include in your bug report, debugging the GNOME shell. See, okay, well, all those first few things are going to be good for anything, right? Yeah. Uh, debugging Mutter. Uh, known issues, frequent complaints, and fundamental changes is also really good so you're not creating dupes it's and like things like that. It's like a really like good that. reference just for people yeah. transitioning or looking to transition to Wayland. Yeah. I think this is nice. And this is what's really cool about what, what – what, you know, when Microsoft uh, dumps their new Windows 10 in your face and tells you it's the best thing ever and Apple tells you the next thing is magical. I thought it was the best thing ever. Well, well That's after, why we're using it here, right? Well, maybe eventually they can get it there. But in the meantime, this is something we as end users could actually go participate in today. I like that quite a bit. And, uh, I, you know, regardless of what distro you run, I would assume some of the work done here is going to also help other distributions. So it's a nice place to go. And we'll have links for that information in the show notes if you guys want to get involved on that. I just like that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's nice to see. And that's, you know, Fedora's doing a great job of trying to push things like that. Yeah. Wes, you found a kick-ass, kick-ass guy that looks really nice. Even, even has some stuff in here for the Mac users. But this is the art of the command line. You know, the, like the meta overview, the basics, everyday use. Processing files and data, system debugging, one-liners, obscure but useful commands, and then crap just for the Mac users, resources, and all kinds of stuff. The art of the command line. And I started reading some of this, and uh, this is a really nice You know, it's guy. pretty in-depth. It looks like it's been well worked over, you know, kind of only the things that need to be there are there. But there's a lot of stuff for, I think, any level of user. I also like seeing, you know, like one of the things they have, the uh, HTTP uh, IE program, which is like a curl alternative that's a little easier for interactive. Maybe you're doing like a RESTful JSON API kind of stuff. They have a lot of these modern modern tools worked in with the classic Unix examples, which is really nice. Yeah, that is cool. And it's, you know, it's a nice resource that I was looking at the edits. It's getting updated uh, fairly frequently, which is nice. So uh, you can check it out. We'll have a link to that. The art of the command line, you could probably also Google and find it. It is posted up on GitHub and it is all formatted in Markdown. That's right, sir. That's right. Very good. Very good. So Wes, uh, you're a trooper this week. You have in here. What is this? Is this is this actually a Sputnik or you know? It looks like it's one of the Sputnik series. You know, it might be. I'm I am actually not sure. I didn't ask. It looks just like but it, but it does. It, it was actually yes. I think it must be because uh, 
on Dell's website, they have it listed with the Ubuntu. Ubuntu. Yep. So he's got one of these uh, one of these uh, Dell laptops here, like the uh, the Sputnik line. Uh, and uh, for this week, you've installed what on there? Uh, Velt OS. Is that what Velt it is? OS? And uh, Velt.io is their website. Yes, sir. And we're going to talk to Ike about that in a little bit to see what he thinks about this. Uh, but Wes has been trying out a bunch of different things, and you know what? I love it because a lot of times you come in here and you've been trying out a different distribution. And I'm curious to know your thoughts on Antigros. So uh, check this out. Their latest ISO is laying the groundwork for a ZFS. Oh, I said it. ZFS kernel module in preparation for ZFS support in their future installer. Hey, that's great. Yeah, so ZFS installation right there in the Antigros installer, so you get a rolling Arch-based distribution with minimal modifications from upstream Arch with ZFS support in a GUI installer. Your thoughts? I love it. Honestly, um, I don't usually install Antigros, but it is my go-to live CD. I think it's a great environment. It's polished. It's pretty. It's got that nice Numix theme. Uh, and also it's Arch, so I know you know you have all the AURS support. You have all the latest packages, and you know if I want to install Arch Linux, that's I just yeah. it, it already has all the installation tools. So if I can do that and have easier ZFS support, yeah. I mean, I love. Like I thought on the uh, Linux Action Show subreddit XOO's take was the best. Hey, Alan, your troubles are over. Oh, Alan. that's just baiting. Look at that. <laughs> but this is not news. Like Ubuntu <laughs> announced they were going to do it first. Yeah. And then everybody's yes. like, oh, well, if it's okay for them to do it, then everybody can do it. I, it appears to be the case. <laughs> well, my concern is how differently it's going to be done in a bunch of different Linuxes. Yeah. Because, and like, it seems like suddenly, like, if when you're setting it up in the installer, as someone who's written the installer for ZFS and required multiple iterations to get it right, um, are they going to do boot environments? Because if not, they're kind of wasting their time. Yeah, I certainly hope so. I imagine. I don't know yet. Because like, it, if, 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 if they're going to use DKMS to make it work, then I don't want my the, boot environment using it. So, I mean, I, DKMS uh, yeah, I seems suppose, to work, but... Right. So, yeah, there's a bunch of questions. There's having ZFS and there's booting from ZFS. Uh, and then it comes out, you know, at some point, Grub would have to do a release, which they haven't done in a couple of years, in order to actually get all the features we yep. push back into Grub actually in a version that people might use. Although, random distros might just pull from their head or master branch or whatever you want to call it in Git, but it seems what, like that's a bad way to run a software project. What's the objection with having boot on something else and everything else like all your main storage on ZFS? Yeah, I don't see a downside, There's, there's really. no objection to that. It's just you lose boot environments. So on FreeBSD with boot environments, you can boot off an older a clone of a snapshot. So like before you do a kernel upgrade... You can just roll back, mm. but you can roll back every before you run. You could do ButterFS root and then upgrade or whatever the equivalent is. Right. You question. would take a snapshot and you can roll back so that if the latest package update install a version of GNOME that likes to crash, you can just be like, "Give me the one I had ten minutes ago." Oh look, it works. That's I don't see how having a separate boot re- uh, remove your ability to do that. I'm not a ZFS expert, though. I should well, because well, if the separate boot is not ZFS, then it wouldn't be included in the snapshot. Other other file systems right. do snapshots, so the idea right. would be one set Not of tools, though, to manage all of it, right? So, I yeah. mean, it, uh, there is a disadvantage to managing ButterFS to get your boot environment working again, and then managing ZFS or ZFS to get your data environment and your OS environment working. That's not ideal. It's not optimal, yeah. right? Yeah, the the entire point is to keep them in sync, right? So it's like, or I actually have on mine two separate 
environments that's, hey, this is FreeBSD 10 with FreeBSD 10 packages, and this is FreeBSD 11 with 11 packages. Because The thing different. is, is like, uh, I, I do go back, though, like, rebuilding your boot environment is a pretty, like, in terms of, like, recovering your server and getting it back online, rebuilding slash boot is a, I mean, there's worse that's, things that could happen. That's not what I mean by boot environment. Boot environment is what we call the different snapshots. So that would be what? Um, kernel version and everything? Or what, what exactly it's, is a boot well, environment? The boot environment is a complete snapshot of everything in the system except for directories you exclude, like your home directory and var log. Okay. So it okay. is the perfectly working kernel and packages and your entire environment that's not volatile data, basically. Mm-hmm. Sort of like, uh, like Unidentified is pointing out, like sort of like SUSE is doing right now with, with Snapper and ButterFS, but it's... Yeah, they're copying the, the but it's ZFS version. Yes. It's ButterFS. So. Yeah. It, yeah, well, it's, it's a something Solaris came up with like 10 years ago. Right, and that's yeah where all new technology comes from. We live in yep. the freaking Star Wars universe where we don't invent anything new; we just steal older stuff and oh God. pretend like it's new. Oh god, <laughs> human progress. Why can't we live in the Star Trek universe where we actually invent new things? Well, I, I actually, boy, that's a whole other boy. We could do a whole episode yep. on that. Holy, holy smokes! Uh, so I'm not quite sure how Anagros is uh, actually. Uh, Rotten, have you had a chance to look at this at all? Do you have any insights on how Anagros is actually rolling this out, or? Because uh, not 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 the technical aspects of what you're talking about, but like the boot environment stuff. Like yeah. that, they haven't really given a full detail of that. It would probably but even be, just usable, you know, setfs as storage would be nice. very nice to see in Linux. Yeah, yes, it would. I think that's a first cut. That's almost certainly what'll happen. Um, yeah, those advanced restore and recovery stuff I think would be further down the line. But for a first, for sure. given this is our going to be our first release with it in. I suspect it will be mostly focused on storage and you will have to, you know, do your own thing for how you recover the things that are not ZFS or the things that are not being snapshot. Right. That makes right. sense. And, and that makes sense. And, you know, that's how FreeBSD did it for a long time. And even when it supported root on ZFS, many people were like, I don't trust it enough, including <laughs> yeah, myself. Right. Yeah, it would you probably, know, I yeah. still have my very first ZFS server, which is still running perfectly fine, but uh, it's still boots off UFS because I didn't trust ZFS back hmm. then. Now, hmm. I actually trust UFS less, but... What is that? Uh, what the Chrisney says here, something about uh, ButterFS boot support isn't in mainline grub. Is that accurate? It is. Yeah, that does sound right. It actually yeah. depends on what kind of features you've enabled in ButterFS and, of course, as well in ZFS. I was going to say, because I use subvolumes um, to boot from in, in grub. Well, and most distros are actually rolling a Git version of Grub anyway. Ah, there you go. There you go. Kind All of right. taking their own snapshots over time. If you so look at it, we were mentioning earlier. I see. If you look at it, yeah. it's almost certainly a Git version of Grub. Yeah, it's almost certainly. Yeah. Is. Well, it's like I said, Grub really needs to, you know, do a release. Hey man, I'm still sticking with Lilo. So what's up? Lilo for life. Lilo for life. That's worse than birds. Hey, that's a title right there. (laughs) It's worse than birds. You're right about that. You know, speaking about living in the Star Trek universe, I'll tell you what feels like living in the Star Trek universe. Ting. Go to uh, right now. Linux.ting.com. But don't get a phone. This is the worst time ever to get a Ting device. You shouldn't get a phone? Do not get anything from Ting right now. Okay. Okay. Don't do it. You told me not to. Yeah. No. I'm telling you right here uh, on Linux Unplugged on uh, December on, on November 24th. Don't buy anything. It's the worst time ever to buy something from Ting, because on Black Friday they are having a crazy sale. And if you can oh. wait just a couple of days, I would definitely go that route. Like 30 percent off some of their top devices. 
uh, like free shipping uh, starting about 8 a.m. Eastern time. The virtual door is open and you can go cray. They got great deals on smartphones. They have uh, really good, like the best chance to get like the, the Tink Sims if you have a couple oh, $5. devices. $5. Maybe I'll pick up five a $5 Sims. Nice. $5 Sims. Exactly. And of course, free shipping on everything. So you can, I mean, they really are $5 Sims, which is awesome. So go to linux.ting.com. Then you can combine that with savings for our show, and you support our show when you go to linux.ting.com. Why go to Ting? Well, they have a CDMA and GSM network to get to choose from, so you could be a boss. But also, it's pay for what you use mobile. No contracts, no early termination fees. You only pay for what you use. It's a flat $6 for the line. So go to linux.ting.com to support this show. Check them out. Try out their savings calculator and go back on Black Friday. Go get yourself an unlocked device. Get updates from the Googs or wherever. Where, I mean, if, if you get a Googs phone, you get the updates directly from the Googs on a network that you only pay for what you use with no contract and you get to choose between CDMA and GSM. That's ridiculous. Linux.ting.com. Go check them out and go get their Black Friday sale. I, uh, I'm tempted to see. I'm hoping there's a couple of different Android devices that are on my wish oh, list man. that go on sale. Because, that would be really exciting. Uh, I'm still – where is my phone, no, Wes? How cracked is my screen? How I many? I mean, that thing is just—it's all West. That look, is ugly. It is all jacked up. It is all. Look, you see the—you see those chips right there? That yes, is, I do. That is a jacked up phone, Wes. Kind of looks like. Does it hurt to touch? It actually hurts to put up to my ear. <laughs> yeah, it actually does. So uh, I have, but I, I have think been, it's the representative of this podcast and the yeah, whole network. Thank it, you. You just can't—you can't, you can't have, have a been, device like that. I've been holding fast uh, and waiting for the Black Friday sale. Uh, not only do I love putting a whole bunch of turkey in my mouth, but I love good sales. So go to linux.ting.com. Go get a great deal. $25 off a Ting device, $25 in service credit, and you support this show. And you can read more about their Black Friday sale on their blog, linux.ting.com. And thanks to Ting for sponsoring Linux Unplugged Show. You guys are awesome. I'm really glad you're doing such a big sale. It's really cool. All right, Wes. So I'm really happy to recommend, uh, recommend to welcome a representative from the Vivaldi Project, a new web browser, really that's designed for their friends, they say. They have a Linux version out. You've been checking it out for a little yeah, bit. Yeah, we're running I, it here today. Yeah, I, I ran it. Uh, I've run different builds of it all along. They have the brand new beta out, so I installed it last night on my rig just to give it a try. And Rory joins us from Vivaldi to tell us a little bit about their new release. Rory, welcome to Linux Unplugged, welcome. and congrats Congratulations on the new beta. Thanks very much. We appreciate it. So uh, you're trying to get the word out about this desktop browser, which is sort of entering maybe the most competitive browser market we've seen in the last few years with Chrome from Google. Firefox is really doubling down on features. Microsoft's got their new Even Edge. Microsoft. Yeah. <laughs> Edge. Even Microsoft. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, are you guys crazy or do you actually have something here? Oh, you'd think so, but actually I think it's a perfect time to do it because um, all of those browsers, the ones that you mentioned, uh, they're all going in a similar direction in terms of offering something very simple for what they believe is the, the common user. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to make something for everyone else, right? The, the common user, but also just people who want something extra and a bit different. And uh, so rather than remove features, which you, you probably saw the other day, Firefox are, are dropping their tab grouping solution, they're dropping yes. their themes. Yes. We're adding those things. So this is wow. this is a browser for everyone else, if you like. So are you are you basically saying it's a browser that appeals to power users, and if but but at the same time isn't too hard to use? Because I'm looking at it, and honestly, you know, I have to say. Using it, it doesn't feel like a complicated browser. So how are you how are you delivering something that isn't reducing features but not being complicated? Because uh, everybody else tells me that's completely impossible. 
Yeah, I think there are a few things there. I mean, we, we've got very good design team, so I think it looks nice and clean in its default layout. But on top of that, what really works is the technologies we're using. There's been a lot of talk of making a browser with HTML, JavaScript, CSS technologies, mm -hmm. and we're one of the first to really do it. And I think that ramps up how fast we can add things. And we've been trying to look at those ways of doing things. Really? I, I, yeah. I've been. I mean, I, I, I guess I knew that, but you know, actually, in using the browser in practice, I have to say it to me feels like it has the fastest UI oh, yeah. elements. It's of any, very snappy. Yeah. I mean. Uh, Very like, few glitches. In, in your impression and my and my impression, Wes, like when you pull, when you like say you bring out the bookmarks bar, I mean it's it is immediately it immediately snaps out, or the downloads immediately snap out, and or it's the animated, notes... but it's not exaggerated animation, right? Like it's like enough yeah. animation. Yeah, yeah, or the or what I really like is uh, the way that the uh, the way that the tabs will assume the color of the site you're on, and then now the yeah. tab coloring is based on the site you're on, but it all happens very nice, very quickly. So, um, I guess what kind of black magic is making this feel so fast? Uh, and and you know, I, my primary experience has been on the Linux desktop, but uh, we, we're now today also we tried it on the Windows desktop. It also feels very fast. The, the, it feels like maybe it has the best scrolling out of any of the browsers on the on the desktop here. Um, the UI elements are exceedingly snappy. What is being what what is being done there to make all of that happen? I think it's just a question of where we are with the web today and. Uh, HTML, JavaScript in particular, has had massive performance increases, and, and you can just do those kind of things now. A few years ago, that would have been a pipe dream, but now we're really there. And so it's just uh, we were the, one of the first to kind of try it, and it seems to work well. I think actually I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that you found it so snappy, but I think there's even further we could go with that because for our own part, we know there are things we can improve, and we're definitely working on them. I uh, I wanted to kind of ask you about the underlying technology because it seems like the – the hard problem you're going to have with technical users that are listening to our show is they're going to look at this and go, well, this is based on Chrome. This is a reskinning of Chromium. This is uh, this is Blink or WebKit. And if I really just wanted to use this, I could just use Chrome. I don't need something that just lays down a UI on top of it and uh, you know has a bunch of stuff just built in that I would rather use as extensions. But that's not that is not actually what's happening here. And what is sort of the uh, the, the go to rebuttal for that? I think the thing with extensions, I mean, they're great. Uh, when I, I used to work at Opera before, and uh, I had 20-plus extensions. They're, they're good, but they often get in the way. Or there's an upgrade and something slightly out of sync, and this extension doesn't work anymore. So it's about giving a whole package and making it very simple. You know, you go into settings, you switch something on, you switch something off. You don't have to go and find the extensions. You, know, you install the browser somewhere else. It's just tweaking a few settings, and you're back to where you were. So I think it's... It's just that simplicity, that ease of, of being exactly how you want it straight away without having to configure 20 extensions or, or worry about, will the next upgrade, will this break my extensions? Mm. It feels to me like it's a guarantee of some features. Like, well, these are important enough that they're in our core feature set we will yeah. these will always work and they will work in a in a really well and, really good way and like you know the one of the good examples of that uh, and it's one that i wonder if people have really explored much is the taking notes and things like that just built right in but uh yeah. you know rory i uh, i wonder it feels like today the biggest thing that i miss when i switch from say chrome to another browser is now today when i install google chrome one of the first things that happens is google says hey why don't you log into your google account and at the yeah. moment that I do that, it pulls down everything, all of my extensions, yeah. all my themes, all my bookmarks. And not only that, but it logs me into all the Google properties, which is a major convenience. And so when I look at switching to a new browser like I did last night when I switched to Vivaldi, 
uh, I had to go through the process of importing bookmarks and all these things. And I wonder, do you feel like perhaps this is the, the biggest area of competition where the uh, browser maker, like Firefox as well, now has this sync service? And essentially, it's this back-end infrastructure I rely on for some of these browsers that's the most appealing aspect to them. And how does Vivaldi sort of draw me away from that and give me something else that says maybe also competitive? Well, I think something you should bear in mind is we're, we're not anti-sync at all. I mean, it's something we've put a lot of man hours into, but we're not quite there yet, but we fully intend to have sync. So those kind of things will appear in Vivaldi in the future. But, you know, we're, we're coming up to our first version. We've just had one beta, so we're not quite there yet. But, yeah, sync is something we want as well. And Great. Uh, sync is something that we intend to deliver in the long run. So uh, there'll essentially be sort of a, the same kind of implementation uh, that I will be able to, you know, sync those things across. And one of the kind of nice power user features I noticed is right out of the box, you can check a box, you have a dark theme. Love that. Yeah. Also, something else that's very cool is there is a quick commands, like you hit F2, and it's a keyboard-based um, command yeah, system really for the browser. Uh, yeah. Really like that a lot. What other kind of power user features are in Vivaldi that maybe I'm not familiar with? Uh, you mentioned uh, you mentioned the panels on the side and and things that like you saw that like notes, but we also have uh, panels for each of our different properties, and we also have a thing where you can add a panel. Um, if you click on the plus, you can add a URL, and it will add that as a page. It actually sends a, a phone user agent, so it usually gets a, a oh, page optimized cool. for a phone, so it has the right size. And then it's a way of like adding an app or checking on something. You can add a page which has maybe a nice RSS feed or some news items, or maybe you want to stick Twitter in there, and then you can keep track on Twitter or Facebook or whatever it is you're interested in. You just add that in the side, and then you can uh, carry on watching. Love um, that, actually. That's really cool. Nice. Yeah, that's yeah, a great idea. You, picture in picture. And you mentioned the quick commands. Uh, the quick commands, I, I don't know how much you play with them, but when you're typing, it can be both, uh, you can type addresses in there. It will search your address book. It will give you the option to search, but it also will narrow down your list of tabs. So it's a way to switch tabs. It also will allow you to uh-huh. type actual commands. So when you said, uh, it, when it's called quick commands, it really means that. So if, for example, if I type new, you'll see in the list below the search engine, it says new window, new tab, new and so there are commands that you can just hit enter on, arrow down and hit enter, and it, it does that action. Yeah, like a new private window, for example. Yeah. Very exactly. cool. That's very nice. As someone who's exactly. used a lot of like, um, you know, like VI type extensions for other browsers, having those kind of quick commands just from the keyboard is really nice. Yeah. Yeah, I think having it built in and making sure it works is what helps. I mean, we have other, uh, we have other things as well. We have a keyboard navigation. If you go to a page and you hold shift, you could use arrow keys to go around on links and so on, and then you can hit enter. To, to go on the links. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> we also have um, uh, tab stacking. So again, you can drag one tab over another. They will combine. They're a stack. You might uh, keep maybe a stack of, say, you're looking, you're doing shopping or, or you, you search for various things on Google. That is really cool. Yeah, I'm yeah. seeing that. And when that. you're done, you just delete the whole stack. You can also, things that are in a stack, you can right-click on the stack and uh, you can choose to tile it so you can see two sites side by side. Oh, I got to try that. All right. Oh. I got to try that. I got to try that. So I will open up a couple of tabs here, and I will drag a couple of episodes of Jupiter Broadcasting on top of stuff. Oh, it's kind of hard to drag it on top of stuff, but I see. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm bound and determined, Wes. I'm bound and determined to do it. I think once you just get over it a little bit, like when the back one fades, then you can Yeah, yeah okay. There you, you go. Call it slightly. There you go. Okay, so then how do I stack them? What do I do now? Okay, there's, there's a couple different ways you can do it. There, there's um, down at near the bottom of the UI. To oh, the I bottom, see. Right? There's a oh, little, it looks my like a gosh. Look at that. You've got tile. 
Oh my gosh, that is so cool. That is so cool. <laughs> I'm glad you like it. Yeah, that is really kind of something, isn't it? <laughs> I could see people, though, who keep track of a lot of different things, you know, and you're kind of trying to get an overview or you have to monitor certain yeah. things. Yeah, or I was, you know, you, social media feeds, yep, RSS right. feeds, yeah. Uh, monitoring for like, uh, you know, uptimes and, and, and like Nagios type stuff. Exactly. That could be super cool. Huh. Now, uh, uh, producer Rottencorps, uh, you had something you want to jump in here with uh, the web panels and extensions and things and quick options and things like that. Go ahead. Yeah, one of the things I found out that I really liked about it was um, one of the like there was an extension I added to test some uh, a, like the tab group concept that uh, Firefox has. Since they're getting rid of it, I was wondering if there was something you could do with like Baldi or something. Yeah, I mean the, the tab stacking. Like, reason I actually took uh, I found a cool extension. And you can take the uh, the extension controls and turn it into a web panel so that you always have that extension just quick uh, shortcut. Oh, okay. Mm. So you can have like just the the, the the options and the controls for in a particular extension can also be it. So it doesn't have to be a website. This is uh, so. This is a pretty competitive market, Rory. Uh, do you suppose that uh, the market for the Vivaldi browser is the user who wants something a little more capable than just the sort of watered-down mainstream browser? Or is it somebody that uh, is, like, doing research? Where, what's the – like, when you look at the core demo for, uh, for the Vivaldi browser, uh, who, would, who is it and why is the Linux desktop part of that story? I think, um, I think it is for those types of users, but I don't think it's only them. I mean, a lot of people used to joke back when uh, we worked at Opera about Opera having no users. But I was there when we had 60 million users uh, back for, for Opera 12 and so on. And there are a large number of people, more than you would think, who like to have, maybe even if it's just one feature, they just appreciate one thing. They appreciate having notes and they don't use any other power user features or they just appreciate having web panels. So I, I think it's it's bigger than that, but um, yeah, sure. I mean, that's our core core demographic right now. That's who we focused on. The browser is uh, we we call it a browser for our friends, and really, Jan von Teschner, who's the founder of both Opera and now Vivaldi. I mean, that that is really what he meant by it. He's making it for the kind of people who are real fans of the old opera, for people like him, for people who want those power user features first and foremost. Sure. We expect others will come as well. And then I wonder, Rory, if there's anything you could comment. You know, if, I mean, it, legitimately, if I'm going to switch to this as my main browser, one of the first questions that comes to mind is what what steps is Vivaldi taking to ensure my privacy when you're looking at, you know, upstream Chromium code and you're making a browser based off that? Is there things being removed that Google includes? Is there any kind of tracking? What's the privacy situation with the Vivaldi browser versus, say, the upstream project? Yeah, if you open the settings, uh, just Alt-P and go to privacy, that you'll see that there's a bunch of stuff that you can tick off. So if you don't like the uh, the Google phishing and malware protections, for example, you switch that off. You switch off diagnostics. That. Whatever you whatever you don't feel comfortable with, you can just switch that off. Um, we also looked at some of the options. Like for instance, some people are, are worried about the amount of data that say Google collect. Um, and so uh, when we when we came to do our like uh, HTML, uh, sorry, not HTML5 notifications, when we came to look at things like. Um, uh, tracking, you know, so when you're on, on Google Maps and you click to find your location, uh, a lot of people use a Google service for that. We actually use one provided by the guys at Mozilla mm. just to just to give something different. Nice. So we, we we do look at those kind of issues. And if people raise them, if they say, you know what, I don't like the way you do this or I feel like this is some form of tracking, 
we're very open to adding options for those kind of things. Yon uh, has like a catchphrase, which is basically, when in doubt, we'll add an option. And so <laughs> we really do do that, which is why a browser which hasn't even been released has so many options already. I, I have to appreciate that. As somebody who's been using the web browser for more than six months, uh, it turns out it's really nice to actually have some configuration control yes, over some of these things. So I really, I really do appreciate that. Roy, is there anything else you want to touch on before we uh, wrap up on the Vivaldi stuff? This has been really cool. Um, the only thing I, I'd like to say is that the, the, the Linux community have been great with us. And uh, at the moment, we have two package types. We have RPMs and DEBs. Um, we do really support the browser in as many distros as possible, though. The only reason we don't do more packaging types is simply because we think that the distros do it better. Mm. So um, I think it'll happen more when we get to final. Distros may consider putting us in one repository or another, which is appropriate. Um, but we would like to work with package maintainers to get native packages because we think that's the best experience for users. Our packages are okay, but people who do packaging all the time do a much better job. Hmm. Yeah, I uh, I was uh, they were very thankful. It was really easy to install from the Arch user repository. Just they have the beta in there, they have the git build, and they have the stable. And I just installed that real quick, and I was able to uh, to use it for the evening. You know, actually, one the one bit of feedback I would have is I wasn't able to watch Netflix. I wanted to watch the new Jessica Jones series, and I couldn't watch it in the Vivaldi browser. I okay. Yeah, we're, we're looking at the wide bind support now. That's a proprietary component that sure, we have to pick up from. Yeah. Um, it, we do do a little trick right now because we had to test these things internally. If you got it from Arch, there, there's a package there in the recommends that they suggest, which gives you H.264 support. Yes. If you install that, we'll also do another trick. If Chrome happens to be installed, like as a test while we're seeing how this works, we'll use their wide bind installation if it's there. Ooh. So you should be able to use it if Chrome's installed them. And, of course, we don't okay. want to encourage you to install Chrome. But right. just in it as I an follow interim you. thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. And, uh, Roy, if you wouldn't mind, Heaven's Revenge has a couple of questions uh, that he wants to ask. Yeah. Uh, go ahead, Heaven's. And uh, I would uh, be curious to hear what you think. Because, you know, I've been using it. I've been pretty impressed. So fire away. Hello. Well, I used to be a very massive Opera 15 or 12 fan back in the day. But this is basically a reborn version of the old Opera, a nice customizable power user version of Opera. What prevents another company from just buying Vivaldi out and changing the new wicked Vivaldi into the new <clears throat> Opera that doesn't have all the power user options and just destroys the old user power user base that we used to it was beautiful, the old Opera, and it's just saddening, and I would hate for the same thing to happen to Vivaldi now. I think there's an interesting story there. If you look at, uh, I don't know how much, if you're an old fan, you probably remember Jan Techner, one of our two founders of Opera, and uh, he's the guy who runs Vivaldi. And it got to a situation where obviously there were more and more shareholders in, in, involved, and they were able to do things outside of maybe the way he would have liked it to go. I think what we have at Vivaldi is what uh, Jan would have wanted Opera to be, uh, our company is wholly owned by him, really, at the moment. I mean, the employees have small amounts of share, but with, I don't think this is intended to be floated anytime soon. Uh, this is a reaction to the fact that opera isn't the way people like Jon wanted it to be, and so there's, there's kind of a protection there, in a way. He's not going to sell this out anytime soon. And that those of us who have small uh, shareholdings in it, neither are we. This is, I don't think this is going to be floated anytime soon. Uh, so he, he's more of the embodiment of the old, loved opera that we all... Very much so, very much so. I mean, Jan is 
very much that kind of a guy. I mean, a lot of us joined purely because it was him and we know his thoughts on the matter. I mean, I myself was working at Opera. I had a job there. There was, um, uh, not long ago, I don't know how much you follow the news, a bunch of people were fired from the Oslo office. I was not, but I quit because I specifically wanted to work with mm. John because mm. I know how he feels about these things. So what, you know, this is a horrible question to ask, really, because nobody likes to talk about this, but... Uh, also, I kind of wonder, I, I totally grok why Google makes a browser. Makes sense. I, I even grok why Apple and Microsoft make their crappy browsers. <laughs> I, I understand why Mozilla does it. What is the long-term sort of revenue model? What's the path to success for Vivaldi? Obviously, you're probably not going to charge for the browser itself. No. And it may not be in stone yet. But is there sort of, as somebody who might become really passionate about this, I like to know you guys are going to be around here for, say, 5, 10, 15 years. What's going to make that happen? I mean, the revenue model is actually the same as we had at Opera. Uh, it's the same way that uh, Firefox makes their money. I mean, there are a few things that you can do to make money from the users, which also benefit the users. One of them is doing search partnerships, and that's where most of the browsers nowadays make most of their money. So like a fraction of a fraction of a penny for every X number of searches we get paid on. Um, and so we add some search engines there and we do deals with them. We do other small deals as well. But the, the idea that we always had at Opera, and I think we did quite well, is to, to add things that are both benefits to the user and benefits to us. I mean, people want those search engines anyway, right? Sure, yeah. Yep. Um, so you try I, to walk that line. Yeah, exactly. You try to walk that line. And, and, and it was feasible to do at Opera. You need some millions of users to make it work. But I think that we can get to those millions of users and it should be self-sufficient. As it happens now, to show you the level of commitment that Jon has, I mean, he's bankrolling pretty much this until we get to that level. So uh, when I said he's making this for his friends, he's doing it. He's putting himself on the line and he's going to make it happen. So, you know, I think you can feel comfortable because it's it's different from the old Opera in that he has much more control here. And so, uh, of course, we are on Linux Unplugged, and one of the questions can probably be very nicely summed up by Heaven's Revenge. I think, Heaven's Revenge, you've been, you've been asking, what's sort of the open source story here? We know it's built on top of some open source technologies, but some yeah. of the things that the Vivaldi's offering are closed source. And, Heavens, I don't mean to cut off your question, but is that essentially what, what you're asking? Yes, considering they were touting how fast and fluid their user interface is. Because and it, it is. JavaScript and CSS-based. Yeah. And since the old, or at least Chromium project is what they're based upon, will they go down the old path of Opera, which is a closed project and a proprietary one, which prevents a default installation on a lot of live disks and a lot of mm, distributions? Yeah. That oh, is what prevented Opera from being yeah. so widely used on a lot of distributions. Being legally allowed to, nature. yeah, like so could a distribution legally redistribute no the browser, right? And honestly, there's a lot exactly. of people out there, you know, that are looking at this thinking, if I'm going to switch to something, I want to be able to trust it. It's a you little more trustworthy if it's open source. Opera, or at least Firefox and Chromium, just because they're open source. So Ubuntu won't even or give Chrome because of its close nature. Chromium or Firefox is their default Unfortunately, option. Unfortunately, to that end, too, yeah. So, uh, so what do we get? Yeah. So, okay. So there are a couple things there. Um, Firstly, all the stuff on Chromium, all, all of the uh, C++ code and everything that makes up Chromium, the changes that we make there are essentially to run our UI, which is written in HTML, JavaScript, CSS, and so on. And all of those changes we, we, we make, uh, some of it we'd have to anyway, but uh, not everything because it, there are different licenses in Chromium and Blink and so on. Um, we put it up as source code. Uh, if you go to vivaldi.com slash source, 
uh, you can download the source code package and that is basically uh, the Chromium version we're currently based off plus all of our changes. Mm. And any change that we made will either match the license, say, for example, if we'd adjusted FFmpeg, we haven't, but it's LGPL, it would inherit the uh, uh, LGPL license. In any other case, we give it under a BSD license. The details are explained in the readme and the license file and so on. Um, so it's only our UI, which is proprietary. That is, however, auditable because it's um, you can just get that from the package, the regular package. I mean, it's just, as I said, HTML, JavaScript, and CSS. It is minified, um, but you can you can go through it and see what it's doing. And, and people have tweaked it. Uh, we have talked internally about uh, possibilities for other licenses, and it's it's definitely a door that's open to us. I, I think that uh, there are people here who want that in the team, and and that our, our whole team works together. So so we can make that happen, maybe. maybe. But uh, I'm not going to promise it. Uh, but it's well, definitely something we look at. And it you know it is uh, it is a box that is already being uh, 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 well called Pandora because. There's a distribution we're going to talk about later in the show today that's already shipping with Vivaldi as the default browser. Yep. So. And you know, we're fine with that. We're, we're absolutely fine with that. I mean, in Opera, back in the old days, the Opera 12 days, um, we had a situation where the license for, for, it was quite a proprietary company in some ways, but we had a license for, for Linux, which was different from the other desktop browsers, mm. and it allowed redistribution and, and repackaging to right. fit the distro. Cool. At some point we tweaked the license unintentionally and basically if you if you read it literally it didn't look like you could redistribute and a bunch of distros actually dropped us and it was sad and it was a lot of effort to get us back in arch i, I did a lot of the community work there i maintained the package myself for a while um i got another guy to take over he's actually the guy who maintains the vivaldi package now huh. um He's uh, one of our volunteers. We have a small volunteer team who help us as well. Uh, so, you know, uh, we, we would bend over to kind of help people get it in the distro. We would really help them. If they want to get something in the distro, we'll see if we can do tweak the license if that if needs be. We just, we try to protect certain things. I get maybe it's the wrong word, but we, we are willing to work with distros to, to allow them to distribute it if it also suits them. Lovely. Well, uh, uh, I have... Yeah, John is an amazing guy. Oop, hey, Chris. No, well, <laughs> go ahead. John was a great man, but I don't want him to bring his mistakes of Opera into Vivaldi. Hopefully he learned from the potential mistake of being the browser closed and not make the same mistake with Vivaldi. I think that Jan is open to things. As I said, I don't want to promise stuff because I, I, I don't, you know, it's still discussions we have internally, but I think he's yeah. very much open to things. He likes people messing with the browser. Uh, back in the old days in Opera, we, we had a situation where there was a, a guy there who was just a fan and he used to binary patch Opera to tweak certain things. Uh, hmm. Later on, Sounds because horrible. he was in, because he was interesting in the community, we hired him. <laughs> that part is it. great. So, yeah, there you go. So, so we're not we're not anti people messing with it, and uh, some of our, as I, I mentioned briefly, we have this volunteer community, a group of people who just help us out for free, who are like in the inner circle. They end up on our on our Slack channel and so on. Sure. And um, one of them is the package maintainer, and those guys have been tweaking it and adjusting small but, things here and there. Okay, so to, to sort of summarize for those listening, if you are creating a Linux distribution today, uh, the Vivaldi project, on the most part. Uh, is okay with you including it in your distribution by default. Is that correct? Uh, correct yes, statement? yeah, yeah, that is. And, and, and if they want to tweak the packaging slightly because not everyone's RPM on Deb or they hate our RPM on Debs, we're, we're cool with that as well. Sure. All right, so we'll have links to download it in the show notes. It's also in a lot of distributions repositories already. And I have to say, it's pretty exciting because it's fast, 
It is very feature-rich. And if you need to take notes, if you do research and things like that, it has some of that stuff built in, which is nice because I have yet to find an extension that doesn't drive me freaking crazy that does that kind of functionality. So it's nice to just have it included in the browser. And I also feel like the UI makes my computer feel like a super machine. Like everything snaps open super fast. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's 2015. So if you want a browser that feels like that, go check out Vivaldi. We have a link in the show notes. Rory, thank you for joining Linux Unplugged and telling us a little bit about it. And congratulations on the new release. Yeah, thanks a lot. All right, so check it out. We'll have a link in the show notes. And uh, Wes, what do you think after using it for a bit? Your closing thoughts, sir. I haven't heard from you. You know, uh, I'm really happy to hear that it's you know built on standard technologies, HTML, CSS. Uh, I have mixed feelings about the closed source nature, but it does perform really well. Yeah. Um, you know, and it is built a lot on uh, our open source tools that we use anyway, Chromium, yeah. you know, etc. This is what I like about it. Is it, what I like about it is it adds some competition to this landscape. Yeah, I think it brings a lot of you know, it's it's well designed. Yeah. I think it brings a lot of features and even if I don't end up sticking with it, I think it, it, it should probably help the ecosystem. And I feel like it's a it's a pragmatic competitor in the exactly. sense that uh, it acknowledges some of the innovations that Google have done are legitimate, and they really have brought some new blood into the web browser market. But at the same time, it's sort of pulling away some of the black uh, magic and allowing you access to some of those privacy things like being able to opt out of Google's content filter is actually a big deal because that means you're sending them a hell of a lot less data. And it's nice to see someone using the Chromium base that that's not Google, but that has a little yes. more heft. You know, yeah. like that. Yeah. This this yeah. will exist for a while, right? Also, and this is kind of my closing thought on it. I what I really like about it is you have a group that is just legitimately focused on a great browser. Yes, right? exactly. At the end of the day, Google is focused on collecting data, selling advertising, and really moving their whole web agenda forward because the web is very important to Google as a company. So Chrome is just a piece. Chrome is an important piece to that. Uh, where with the th- one of the things about the Mozilla Foundation and, one of, and obviously with Vivaldi and other projects like them, I really, really respect the fact that what they actually are focused on for the most part is just creating a great browser. Now, the Mozilla Foundation, it, you know, that's not their only focus, right. but it's a huge part of their focus. And, and at the end of the day, as a user, I really like where their intentions begin. And I think that's really awesome, too. So I'm glad to have another thought leader in that space. So check it out. We'll have links in the show notes. And in the meantime, I encourage you to spend your holiday weekend not consuming turkey, but checking out DigitalOcean. Head over to DigitalOcean.com and use our promo code D-O-Unplugged. D-O-Unplugged, one word, lowercase. You know, it's way better for the waistline. Exactly. <laughs> Don't eat that stuffing. Nope. Don't eat that crap cranberry Ignore from Ignore your can. family. Mm. You should play around on DigitalOcean. Which is instead. way better for your psychology. Yes. Let's be right? honest. Right? You know what, guys? Here's the thing. I am 33 going on 34. And let me tell you something. It doesn't get any better. It doesn't. The family is... It is Woo-wee, let me tell you something. The family, you could just avoid that. I, I can tell you after 33 years, just avoid them. This is my personal recommendation. Stay home and play with DigitalOcean. And if you're not going to do that, like I tell you to, that's Chris's personal recommendation. Don't don't get mad at him, folks. Yeah. I, I Hey, I warned you. Just just carve, if you'll excuse the, the pun, <laughs> carve a little a time aside to go play with DigitalOcean and use the promo code Unplug. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to get your own Linux rig up on their super awesome SSD-based cloud with 40 gigabit e-connectors all running on KVM with Linux as the infrastructure because Linux is a boss, right? So they got KVM, which is a super great virtualizer. It's awesome. It is. We had. Did you know that we have a KVM rig here in the studio? I did not know that. So, before DigitalOcean was a like a thing in Chris's world, they existed, but it wasn't in my world yet. That's right. Uh, I was out building KVM machines off of old rigs that are just monsters with 
ridiculous water cooling Ooh. and I mean yeah yep. it, it is a system Wes and you'd be pretty I should show it to you before you leave you should yes and, and anyways this was how I was going to like grow the Jupiter Broadcasting infrastructure thinking about scale here yeah yeah I was going to spin up machines on this uh, rig in my garage <laughs> it's just so ridiculous yeah. now that I think about it now because for $5 a month I can get 512 megabytes of RAM a 20 gigabyte SSD one CPU and a terabyte of transfer right and that's tier one bandwidth that, that's the what, beginning what tier do you have Chris here at home do you well, <laughs> don't even so for those of you Hopefully you don't even know, but we've actually had to stop recording and re-record parts of the show because we've had connectivity issues here at the studio, which, as Wes can attest, made Chris a little grumpy. Yes, just I, a little bit. I got a little grumpy because I started I started cussing. I started talking about how much I spend. And, I, you know, the thing is, $5 a month, that's less than a Big Mac. It's, it's nothing. It, it is less than I spent on beverages for this show by quite a bit. You go to DigitalOcean, use the promo code DOUnplug, you get $10 credit. They got data center locations in New York, San Francisco. Singapore, Amsterdam, London, and a brand new one in Toronto, and a super brand, super nice, kind of brand new, not as new as Toronto, but still like it still smells like that. It has that new data center smell mm-hmm. in Germany. Oh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it's that interface. Man, is it that interface? They have a great interface that really makes all of the kind of virtual machine management. Really straightforward. Deploying applications, destroying your machines. You wanted to go deploy a FreeBSD rig, a CoreOS rig, CentOS, Debian, Ubuntu, Fedora 23. Yeah, they have Fedora 23. You can go deploy them right now. Use the promo code Unplugged. You get that credit. You get that credit. You put it up in that in that little spot they got there. No credit, credit, credit card. They got a little credit spot there, Wes. Yeah. They got a little credit spot. You know, that's what they call it. And, you know, the other thing I really like about DigitalOcean is – well, I got some really, really good tutorials. They have a brand new one up. I recommend you go check out how to create a high availability setup with Heartbeat and floating IPs on Ubuntu 14.04. This is a really, really nice write-up with some super great visuals, the basic understandings. Because what DigitalOcean has done is they've hired professional content editors to actually edit this stuff. It is good. It is good, and it's all just included with DigitalOcean. Use the promo code Plug, get a $10 credit, go deploy an own cloud server, Minecraft server, sync things server. My gosh, you guys, there's so many things you can do with it. Wes, do you have anything you want to uh, – It's just – I mean just just the kind of level of stuff. That you, you don't have to get – you know, you don't have to buy a, a really nice edge firewall that you have put on your network. You know, you can just get floating IPs. You can you can yes. have these kinds of, yes. you know, enterprise-style yes. yes. setups. I know. But now, for your own peace of mind. Now, now, Wes, is there a way I could take my MB Fedora 23 droplet and combine floating IPs so that way I could have high availability MB? Can you think of I'm, – I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just spitballing here, Wes. I'm spitballing with you. I don't know if that's possible, but <laughs> but it's open source, so we go. can make it happen. Screw you, Plex. Go over to DigitalOcean.com and use the promo code Unplug Get a $10 credit and try DigitalOcean and say, sorry, family. I got more important things this holiday season. That is the holiday spirit here at Jupiter Broadcasting. Use the promo code Unplugged And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring Linux Unplugged. Plugged. All right. So on this week's episode of the Linux Action Show, we talked about Solus OS, a really slick, built-from-scratch operating system distribution, if you will, of Linux. Uh, GNU slash Linux, by the way. Don't get that S wrong. That is embarrassing. GNU slash Linux distribution. Oh, I've never installed GNU slash Linux. Yeah, there you go. And uh, we talked about it. We reviewed it. It has a really nice desktop called Budgie, Budgie based off of a uh, little bit of GNOME. And I could tell you all – I could go on and on about it all. But instead, Ike, who is the guy behind the distribution who has joined us before on the show, has come back on Linux Unplugged to not only do a little bit of follow-up on the review but, you know, correct pronunciations, tell me anything I've missed, and maybe hopefully tease the big release. Ike, welcome back to Linux Unplugged. 
Thank you very much. So, what did I get? What was the what was the uh, what was the biggest thing I got wrong in my review or Noah's review? Our review. Let's blame Noah. Noah's yeah. review. What was the biggest thing Noah got wrong on this week's episode of Linux Action Show while we were talking about Solus? Uh, to be honest, it was mainly just the stuff about Solus. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that would make right. sense. That would uh, kind of be the range. Yeah, so anything pertaining to the actual review was probably wrong. And and <laughs> so where do you want to start? Uh, is uh, is there anything that really jumped out at you that was offensive? No, not offensive as such. Um, I think there was uh, probably a misunderstanding about what the whole thing's about. Uh, so we won't be doing a 1.0 until a date that I haven't got um, because of Murphy's Law. We well, wait a minute now. I saw, I, saw, I saw specific GIF animations that implied it may be coming to a stocking stuffer near me. This is your source? Yeah. GIFs? Really? Yeah, well, yes, but, <laughs> but they are GIFs on the Solus Project oh, website. Okay. So, you didn't say that. Yeah. <laughs> Go. yeah. Busted. Yeah. <laughs> so there's no specific date yet, just sometime before Santa turns up, mm. um, which is not hard. You know, he's fat, so we should make it. Yeah, he's slow. Um, yeah. Um, so sometime before Christmas, but I mean, there is a lot to be done yet, to be honest with you. Um, Budgie at the moment is going for a complete and utter rewrite. Uh, we put GNOME 3.18 for recently, mm. which I noticed in the 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 uh, words. I'm not good at them. I noticed when, when you guys were showing up on the screen last time, it was showing GNOME 3.16, yeah. which kind of gave me an idea that that system was badly out of date. Um, we've upgraded mm. the kernel since then. Um, mm. We've done a lot of security updates since then. But in itself, it's not such a bad thing that it is out of date because I may be completely and utterly broke, Budgie. <laughs> so the 3.18 update, and I mean, Budgie's nearly two years old. Yeah. So when I started out, it was GNOME 3.10 or something like that. We started out with the code base. And the stuff that we put in there to actually keep it all working, that's completely broken now. Um, GTK and Motor are on less drugs than they used to be. So all the workarounds that we used to have in place now break it. So we've had to do a complete rewrite of the Budgie desktop, but it now looks nothing like the old Budgie if you want it to, if that makes sense. Hmm. It sounds like you're heading towards a cleaner version, though. Yeah, get rid of the old hacks. Uh, basically, take out the trash, to be honest with you. Um, there's a lot of it's built up after the last two years. So, I mean, last two years, I mean, it's still two years of engineering experience put on top of that. So you're going to find a lot of stuff that makes you think, really, was that me? I'm ashamed. <laughs> you know? As in many projects. Yeah, that does happen. Uh, but OK, so um, when we were when we were looking at it, I, I guess it could have been out of date. I suppose that that is possible. Although um, I think what it was is I was showing. So every now and then I, I kind of waffle on this issue. Almost every other review is. A lot of times I get slammed for installing updates and customizing the distro, and I, actually I can't be curious to hear your opinion. And then other times I get slammed for not changing the distribution. So I kind of – when it's like a boutique distro that is trying to deliver an experience, I try to go all defaults. And when it is something that I feel like is your day-to-day workhorse, like an LTS or a Fedora release, I try to customize um, and I'm curious, Ike, so in your experience, if I was going to do a review of your distribution, say, down the road, would you prefer that I, I, I sort of live in it for a week and customize it? Or would you like me to go on air and tell people, you know, this is the experience right out of the box? Well, you see, it's not up for me to tell you what to do with your computer. Um, we try and go with the same defaults by default. <laughs> you know, you want, to, you want things to look nice by default, but by no means are we trying to stop people from customizing things. I know there are 
certain design-led projects out there which would rather you didn't ever post a screenshot hmm. without a wallpaper within a certain hue, shade, and battery level. Um, but we're not along those lines. You know, we're not really into the whole hipster culture. Um, this is exactly how things should be. You know, if you want to put a picture of a dead pigeon or a dead budgie on there for for all matter, you can do it. Yeah. Really not bothered. <laughs> okay, good to know. Noted. So, uh, all right. So I know we're going to retread some ground, but I, you know, just in case people haven't heard old episodes, uh, I've got to ask this question. Um, are you completely crazy for creating your own desktop? And why don't you just uh, tweak the GNOME 3 desktop? Because I don't like GNOME Shell. <laughs> so I, I like certain things about it and when I first started out with Budgie I thought well logical step let's try and you know shove a few things in here get rid of the overview let's try and put something down the bottom that looks like a panel mm. but at the end of the day as nice as Gnome Shell is it is monstrously heavy yes. um, so the, the computer I'm running on now is actually an Intel NUC and it has 16 gigs of RAM now that's more than most people have for any day to day stuff and I probably shouldn't complain you know, when I have enough RAM to do everything I want to do. However, on cold boot with Budgie, I'm using just under 200 megs of RAM, and that's obviously with Intel graphics. If it was NVIDIA graphics, you know yourself it's going to be slightly higher. They do tend to leak. Um, but with GNOME Shell, I'm using something like 760 megs of RAM just to start. Uh, another problem with GNOME Shell that I found myself, because everything is in, implemented as clutter, um, so they have their own toolkit, which is a fork of MX. Basically, everything that's on the screen is a frame buffer object. Mm. Um, so if you, which is basically how clutter works. Now, when it comes to Budgie, the only frame buffer objects basically are the windows themselves, and that's the things that we animate around and we push them around. When it comes to GNOME Shell, every last thing. Uh, whether it's the little pop-over menus or the panel at the top or your wallpaper, every single one of those is a frame buffer object, which is using more of your GPU, which obviously means more GPU wake-ups. Um, yeah. If you're using software right. rendering, that means a lot more CPU wake-ups. That means you're actually using more power than you could be. And it also means that if you have shared um, shared video memory, you have less of that to go around for the applications or the games that you're using. All right. I mean, that's all that's all fair. But essentially, at the end of the day, though, you are also sort of banking on some of the underlying technologies they are iterating on. I mean, obviously, for example, GTK 3.18 was important enough for you that it's you're willing to sort of bump some things around and rework on it. So there's some underlying technologies there that you must seem must seem sound to you, right? Yeah, I mean, that's the whole idea. So the, the GNOME technology, the GNOME stack, I absolutely love it. Um, I, I have my problems, and I do rant and bitch, but we all do. <laughs> it's stuff that we work with on a daily basis. Um, the the only thing I don't like is the GNOME shell itself. Um, that, that's personally not for me. That's not how I want my desktop. Um, that's very much a, this, here's the experience you're getting. This is how we see it should be. Um, but all the rest of the technology, like LibMotor, uh, GLib, Vala, we use all those stuff, and we use them quite proudly. Um, I mean, me myself, I'm a member of the GNOME Foundation anyway, and I'm quite happy to use GNOME technology and to see other people using it and improve it and contribute to it myself. So I try to, when I'm talking to people, I try to get them to differentiate between GNOME and GNOME Shell because they one is built on the other. It's exactly mm. the same with Budgie. Yeah. Budgie is built on GNOME, but Budgie couldn't exist without GNOME. Is very, very much dependent on it, and we're happy to integrate with all that because we don't have to go right in our own control centers or sure. our sentence demons and all that crap. So uh, to me, what it seems like the elephant in the room for a distribution like this is sort of the big meta problem, and that is the community, the documentation, the packages, the how-tos, all of the um, tribal knowledge. And so it seems like you run the risk of 
basically the desktop becoming a feature of something else that's based on a more mainstream desktop or I mean a more mainstream distribution of Linux. So what – when I'm looking at SolarOS, what do you feel is the compelling thing about the underlying operating system that is powering this pretty cool desktop that would actually make me choose SolarOS itself over say Budgie on something that's derived from Arch? What is your thoughts there? Um, well, straight off the bat, and I know everyone's going to flame me for this and say, how dare you say this? This can't be true. Um, Solus boots faster than Arch. Um, I know it's a controversial statement and I'm probably going to be shot in my sleep for it, but it does. Um, so before I did a reinstall of my Nook, Arch, uh, um, I'm saying Arch now, <laughs> Solus boots in just over a second for me. Um, the, the highest I got it is 1.189 seconds and I yeah. didn't bother optimizing anymore. It did seem the extremely fast is, to me as well. Yeah, uh, the point is, Solus is not a generic distribution. While you can take a generic distribution and try and shoehorn it to your needs, uh, the fact is that thing can run on everything from a toaster to a satellite, whereas Solus can. You can't put it on a Raspberry Pi, you can't put it on a server, you're not putting on embedded hardware, you don't have the potential to do any of that. So there isn't any situation where we have to have a hundred different package conflicts and we have to wonder, worry about all these different groups and all these different architectures. Mm. Solus is built specifically for an x86-64 computer and only for the desktop. So there's only a desktop kernel and it's a single kernel that we maintain. It's our configuration for a 64-bit desktop. Focus. And that's... Yeah, and that's up and down the entire stack. Now, I, don't get me wrong. People say to me, well, why don't you take Debian, you know, strip it down, uh, just do a kernel config there. It's still the same situation because you still have all of those packages, right? Um, I can't exactly go through rebuilding the whole distribution. Now, I've made that mistake before, and that was Solus <laughs> OS. We all know what happened. I ended up closing down Solus OS because in the early days when that was happening, uh, at the end of 1.3, when we closed doors, I had over 7,000 packages that was maintained outside of Debian within Solus because the amount of problems I had trying to implement what I wanted to do. So it's actually easier for me to be a from-scratch distribution. Um, hmm. so the main thing with us is being focused entirely on the desktop. But unlike some of the projects that come out and say, yes, we are desktop-orientated, we are looking at mainstream desktop usage. Yeah. That means, can I use this for my work at the office? And um, For me, I need to do it for my job. So I'm a software engineer, I need to be able to do that. But at the end of the day, I still need to be able to go on and watch YouTube. I still need uh, Netflix. You know, so, all these Ike, is it, is it your impression really that my question is maybe out of date and really the end user doesn't give a shit what the underlying distro is and as long as it watches YouTube and reads Facebook and does Gmail and Google Docs and Office 365 and Chrome or Vivaldi. Is it in your impression that that would be what all that really matters? And if you create the own – if you – I guess what I'm trying to ask you is, is do you feel like – when I look at your distribution, I think to myself, well, geez, there's all these packages not available. But it sounds like to you that's not, that's not, even, that's not even a concern at all. No, um, I understand a lot of people are going to say it's like, well, you're building this from scratch. You've got to you've got to make all these packages, and that's going to be very, very difficult. Um, so we've tackled quite a few problems with the the whole packaging situation in Solus. Um, it got to a point. It's probably about uh, six months back. We say, right, all this manual packaging is a complete not a pain in the backside. Um, so the simple answer was automate the shit out of it. So I'm going to. I'll give you a link there now on IRC so you can see it yourself. Okay. Uh, because here's here's where I'm going with this is uh, uh, I mean I, I I guess 
Ike, what I'm what I'm trying to get to is is this maybe coming down to a philosoph- uh, a philosophical difference, a a, a fundamental um, a different expectation from uh, who you're creating this distribution for, and maybe who would normally consider themselves an advanced Linux user. Uh, and the reason and I, and the reason why I bring this up is I want to introduce you, and of course I'm sure you're aware of it too, Velt OS, which is using your desktop environment but built on top of Arch Linux. Arch Linux, and it is it promises you everything Arch has with the rolling base, the AUR, but yet this new nice fantastic, the package manager that many right. people already know. But with this nice new desktop, oh, and of course the Vivaldi browser as default. <laughs> What are your thoughts about Velt OS? And this seems like a natural kind of open source thing to happen when you have a pretty compelling desktop, but a base that maybe is not appealing to the more advanced user. Your thoughts, sir? Sure. I mean, you've got – I say this to everyone. People say to me, but um, why don't you use Pac-Man for Arch? And to sum it up in a statement, I don't care about package managers. <laughs> um, okay. The fact that people still care about them in this day and age is nothing short of disturbing for me when we're saying that Linux has no mainstream adoption, yet it must have the most advanced package manager of rollbacks. It must have user repositories. It must have XZ compression. Nobody should actually be caring about that in this day and age. If they mm. want Linux to actually get somewhere on the desktop. So in the case of Velt, I mean, that's built on Arch Linux. That's great. I'm actually concentrating on building something that focuses on working from the ground up so the user never has to mess about with anything. At the same time, I don't want to make something that's completely condescending to the point that it's holding your hand the whole way through. So you were talking about philosophy. Uh, Some part of it is philosophy, Mm -hmm. the fact that it will get out of your way. And the other part is that no distribution actually exists that is optimized for a desktop experience. Everything is shoehorned because you take a generic distribution and you try and apply it to the task at hand, which we've already shown doesn't work. Mm. Now, as for Velt OS, yes, they're using Body Desktop at the moment. Um, they've claimed that they're starting their own new desktop. There was a bit of attention on the, about this on Softpedia, as I'm sure you saw. Mm-hmm. Uh, and initially said that they was forking Body Desktop. They later retracted the statement to say that they wasn't forking Body Desktop. Now, I went along and looked into their package repos. I looked on GitHub. They renamed the package to Voss Body Desktop and made not a change to it. The mockups they've put up in their community. Um, I mean, I'm not going to insult their mock-ups. They're not quite my thing, right? (laughs) They're not quite for me. I follow your lead. But they've never at any stage ever approached us about getting changes made in in Budgie. So they themselves are showing their own project immaturity by attempting to fork and then, you know, then going back and saying, oh, well, we're not forking now because they was made to look stupid, to be quite honest. Um, Everyone was saying, why are you forking it? Well, we're not forking it. Okay. But had they just approached us upstream and said, you know, these are the changes we're going to put in, uh, even the Budgie desktop in its current iteration supports applets and it can be built out of tree. It has an API. You can develop your own plugins. You can develop your own applets. There's absolutely no need for a fork at all. So... If it was another project, I would say, okay, maybe you've got something going, but I so don't you quite feel, see it. You, pe- you feel pretty soundly that uh, the entire – in order for the desktop experience that you're trying to create, the entire thing needs to be a complete package. It's not abstractable. You can't really remove the desktop from the underlying OS because the underlying OS is fundamentally built to sort of support what the desktop is trying to deliver. Am I following your basic logic? Well, I mean, if you really want to go and remove it, you can. That's not a problem. I mean, we've got Gnome Shell in the repos. We've got GDM. So you can sure, switch yeah, to desktop okay. right. if, that, if that's up your street. But, I mean, out of the box, 
nobody has to worry about a package manager. That, that's kind of the idea we're getting to. Right. It's an operating system. You run daily. It looks after itself. And this has kind of been my problem with uh, distros and operating systems over the years. We have all these workarounds that we put into place. Um, we have these config files that we go in. We have these packages we go adding because we know that they add the functionality we need. Or We have these, these set fixes that we know always work, yet the distribution of the operating itself never does anything about it for you. Now, my argument should be it's an operating system, so, you know, it should operate. It should actually do what it knows how to do. And I don't see any distribution like that. And that's my argument against any current desktop distribution. They don't look after themselves. So you you have to maintain the distribution. It doesn't maintain itself. What uh, what is sort of the uh, so, um, you know, let's just say uh, let's say you manage to beat Santa. And uh, <laughs> as an end user, something I might want to install on my machine arrives after it's installed for a bit. What does the update picture look like? You know, a few months down the road, a year down the road. What can I expect uh, as sort of a long-term maintenance of my uh, Solus rig? So, in terms of support, what we decided to do, um, figured it'd be kind of an effort to have like one release and then an LTS release. And to be honest, I'm going to lose count, and I'm not the best fellow with numbers. So, <laughs> what we decided to do is we do a release, we do. That release each year, and then each release gets a two-year support because ones and twos are very easy for me to add up. So every two years, you know, your distribution, as it was, loses support. But you've already had two releases since then, do you know? So if I release this sometime in December, next December there would be the new release, which would be 2.0. But the one you're already using would already be supported for that next year as well, or you can upgrade. Very nice. That makes sense. Some options, yeah. Wes, any other uh, follow-up questions before we uh, wrap up here? What have you thought after using it for a bit? Uh, you looked at Velt OS too. Was there something that struck you between the differences? Velt did feel a little more bolted together. Yeah, um, you know, it's also it's also very new. Where Solus has had has clearly had a lot of thought. Put sort into of, it. sort of one of the things Velt gets is sort of inheriting sort of all of that work there. But at the same time, I do. And I mentioned this in the review on Linux Action Show. And if you guys haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, I wouldn't. I wouldn't like want to like over promote but you might want to go check it out i mean you just might want to go check it out before you, you finish you listening. definitely should yeah and in there i you know one of the things is i really like the idea of something and i, I don't know if i really touched on it very well but I, what i really like is something that's just i'm focused on the desktop i'm not worried about arm and mobile and convergence i'm not worried about the server and cloud i'm not worried about any of that i am worried about kick-ass desktops and kick-ass laptops and uh there is something about Starting at the very beginning with that intent and moving your project forward over a series of years with that intent, but but not getting so, 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 so far lost into it, no offense to the elementary OS folks because they still do great work, but not getting so lost into it that it takes literally years for things to happen which is just not happening for any any power linux user so what what solo s seems to be trying to strike the balance of is here's something that has um a pretty fast development pace uh it really is truly targeted for your high-end workstation an engineering station a development station a sysadmin station whatever uh, you know a great porn machine whatever you want to do it's targeted well for that and you know what yeah there's things called the raspberry pi yeah there's things called the nexus 4 that you can install images on don't care about that there is something about that intention that appeals to me quite a bit what do you think well i think there's i think we see that space like just the number of developers who end up using macbooks you know they, they want that desktop development or desktop environment that gets out of the 
other way that they don't have to worry about package management. So if you're right. Solus, I hadn't even made that can, connection, but that can is deliver on some of those things. Yeah. You know, at first I was thinking like, well, you know, it's another package manager to learn. A lot of people like to use Ubuntu on the desktop because they use Ubuntu on the server. But there's lots of people already who you know use the Mac, use a different environment mm-hmm. or Windows. So if this can be the kind of desktop where you install it, you don't have to worry about it. You've got your shell. You've got you know YouTube that works. And also, and it's very pretty and usable. I could, I could see that. There's something bold about a Linux distribution that's saying, "Yeah, we're for power users, but don't think about the package manager." Right. There's something kind of bold about. that. I don't know how that's going to shape out. I mean, I think we'll see when when 1.0 is out. But yeah, you can see but how maybe definitely a, you can see how maybe there. we're maybe it's time we start talking and going that direction. Uh, all right, Ike. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Feel free to jump in and tell, tell objects and tell us how we're wrong. <laughs> well. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, that is definitely one of the things that I, I really don't care about the package manager. Now, another thing to remember is Solus is about having a stable core and up-to-date applications. Which so, is a thing of mine. Yeah, I love that. I mean, Yep. So, I mean, we're using the example here of Arch, right? Arch Linux is a rolling release. So, to give you an example, which many Arch users have gone through themselves, um, you have to go onto the blog because these binaries or these libraries are gone, so you have to now move these files across, which is unavoidable, and it cannot be solved by their package management. So, the package manager here doesn't mean nothing. Um, to put a, fan- a nice label on a package, it's a tarball with a bit of information. It's just a glorified tarball. That's all a package is, right? So, as much as somebody might derive from Arch Linux, and they might have our desktop on it, and it might make it very 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 pretty at the end of the day they're going to run into these update problems because it is a rolling release something like a lib png update which bricks the entire system now i can imagine there's a few arch linux users around who can remember that or the rename of the jpeg libraries any one of those incidents so rolling release already has a major disadvantage in a desktop which is aimed at not just linux users yeah people who just want to use their computer right right, right. Yep. they're not going to be able to fix that um so, yeah, that's kind of our take on it. Uh, in terms of adding packages, we're one of the easiest, if not the easiest, distribution going to package for. The the average package meter information file that we have is probably about 30 lines, and most of that sort will generate from a tarball. So adding a package probably takes a couple of minutes in our distribution. So if somebody wants something, we'll add it. The thing is, we're not going to go around looking for the packages to add because, at the end of the day, Actually, I don't know what people I use. I don't. I don't really feel like you need to defend it. Uh, it. It almost seems like in a year or two, it's going to be obvious, and you just might be a little bit ahead of the curve because you have uh, the XGG app stuff on the GNOME side, and also uh, the KD guy's been talking about you know containerized applications that are easily portable between right. distributions. You now have folks like Valve that are shipping Steam with the Steam runtime environment, where you know you install Steam on Fedora and OpenSUSE and on Arch. And what are you actually getting? You're getting an Ubuntu runtime inside your Steam folder. And they're making this possible now by saying, target these libraries. We guarantee that if they have Steam installed, they'll have these libraries because we're putting them on the system. And I I think when you have commercial vendors that are coming up with solutions like that, you have the open source guys that are looking at things like XDG app and containerized applications. It is being solved by multiple different sources and forces and you don't have to really worry about that problem maybe in a year or so. Right, and that's one of the things I've been trying to get across a while for people. So, I mean, one of the things we have to accept as a project, I mean, we're coming up for a 1.0, right? Most people are like, who the hell is Solus? Never heard of you. 
don't really care. So we have to acknowledge the fact that we will have a 1.0 come out. This is the, the distribution solace coming in and out and saying, hello, we exist now. You should probably get interest. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, which is something you have to accept. I mean, you've got to put your foot in the door somehow. But when it comes to 2.0, I mean, one of the things we're working towards is making solace stateless. Um, it's one of the things I've actually adopted from work, which basically means there are no configuration files by default. There are no overrides. Everything is the same default. And mm. you would quite literally mean your ETC tree being empty, which is something worth thinking about there, right? Another thing I want to do when we come up to Solus 2.0, which I can't do at the moment, because we have to get the distro out there. We have to get people to know it. They have to say, this is Solus. Look what we do. We're very pretty, aren't we, right? You have to do <laughs> all that side of things. But for 2.0, I mean, you're going to be seeing a complete separation between the operating system and everything that you have. Because as far as I'm... Uh, the best example I can give, like the 3.18 update that I put in for GNOME. Now, that was to put the new user land applications in because people want the new pretty Nautilus. Sure. They love all that shiny right. stuff. Thank you, by that the way. Should, <laughs> oh, no, it's absolutely fine. Google Drive as well. Why not? <laughs> but people want all that stuff, which is absolutely fine. But at what cost? That should not brick the operating system. Now, in our case... Budgie would be considered part of the operating system. That's the, the stack and the shell that everybody gets, right? Now, that should not be broken. So when we go towards 2.0, you're going to see a separation between that. Applications will be out in the user's control, but you won't be able to brick the operating system. So an update to an app won't brick the OS, and vice versa, the, 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 the OS itself wouldn't brick the, uh, the apps, which I think is something that really starts, needs to start happening for something that wants to be mainstream and a desktop. Well, that's that's very ambitious, and I would love it if you would check back in with us from time to time and give us an update. I've also been following the uh, the blogs, like the weekly, uh, like number eleven just got posted, I believe, which has kind of been giving some me, you know, giving some good insight. Regular updates, yeah, exactly. So, uh, Ike, uh, thank you very much for coming on and uh, sharing with us, and uh, I'm going to keep checking it out. I have, uh, I now have it installed. And uh, I don't know, maybe maybe one day. Yeah, JB Community, do the same. You know, could We'll go the, out, try to break it. Could and, be uh, the distro of choice one day. Check back Dist- in. Well, do make sure and break it. And while you're at it, make sure you keep an eye out for Budgie Next, which is the, the yeah. replacement for Budgie, yeah. which is very, very, very sexy, by the way. Yeah. It has a notification center as well. That is, I mean, that lo- that is honestly looking like it's worth its its own episode to discuss because uh, it the video that was posted was looked very nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely, and we have links to all of that in the show notes. All right, Ike, uh, you are welcome to stick around. Thank you for coming on the show today and telling us about that. Before we move on to the last topic, which I I hope I hope doesn't get me fired from the show. Uh, hopefully, the boss doesn't fire me. Uh, but before we get to that, I want to talk about our friends over at Linux Academy. Now, Linux Academy is a platform built around educating you around all of the technologies that make Linux a really awesome platform. Of course, Linux itself is good, and there's tons of stuff you could learn just there. So go to linuxacademy.com slash unplug to get the Linux Unplugged discount. Linux, Linux Academy is not like uh, – well, I don't even want to point you in the wrong direction, but let's just say – I don't know if you're familiar with this, Wes, but there are a lot of resources online for learning. Yes, there are. Yeah. And a lot of them have uh, what you might call features that they just kind of throw on there. It's more like a kitchen sink kind of thing. There you go, Wes. That's not the Linux Academy. It was created by people that are actually genuinely enthusiastic about Linux and open source. And then they have the idea, well, why don't we just pair up with our friends that are educators and get some professors in here? And then, you know, we have these folks that we know that are developers. They could create this incredible platform and they've done it. And for me, one of the key features about Linux Academy is you log in and you can look at all of the courseware and all of these things that are sort of mythological technologies or, uh, you know, uh, skill sets that you've only dreamed of before 
are now all of a sudden quantified in hours and your commitment. And that is really a powerful situation. Go to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged to see what I'm talking about. They've got almost 2,000 self-paced courses with instructor help available. Seven plus Linux distributions you get to choose from. The courseware automatically adjusts and so do the virtual servers. I really like that aspect because they realize it's not just a Red Hat world or a Debian world. Or an Ubuntu. Ubuntu world. Thank you, sir. Yep. There's seven plus distros you get to choose from. They have scenario-based labs, which are really kick-ass. You get to go in there and do something that's like something you would do actually at work, which, what a concept, right? But they really have thought this out. Also, they recognize you're probably going to want to work on this stuff through like an SSH connection from your desktop. So you can just bring up your favorite terminal application. You can SSH into a DNS name. You get access to these things. If you're doing like AWS training, they'll spin up the AWS rigs for you. It's really cool. And also, one of the things that I respect as somebody who gets super busy with three kids and my own business is they have an availability planner. You can log into the dashboard and tell Linux Academy, you know, uh, basically, I'm going to follow the Jupiter Broadcasting calendar and make sure I watch every live show. And every moment where Jupiter Broadcasting isn't live, make me available. Or, you know, I've got a lot of work and Thanksgiving this week. So I'm not available on Thursday. I'm going to take Friday off. But you know what? I might dedicate four hours on Saturday and an hour on Sunday evening after everybody goes to bed. You go into Linux Academy, just kind of give it your availability, and it will automatically generate courseware that matches that with quiz reminders and all of that kind of stuff. It is really cool. Also, they've done a whole new update on their CDN, so things are faster than ever, like their downloadable comprehensive study guides, the audio and stuff, and the video distributions you can watch. I've, I've heard from several people now that listen to the Linux Academy stuff in the shower. Wow. Specifically. Huh. And I'm... I mean, you might as well learn something while you're getting clean. I'm not making this up. Like, at meetups, even when I was at Denver, I like, he's like, you could... I'm another guy that listens in the shower to Linux Academy. Like, add me to the list. I don't know. Maybe... You know what? You know what? Maybe... Have you ever, have you ever heard of shower thoughts? Yes, I have. Yeah. What if... What if it's not just, like, really great ideas when you're in the shower? What if it's, like, your brain is in overdrive and you can crazy learn? What if that's what it is? Because I'm not kidding you. A lot of people have told me they listen to Linux Academy in the shower, and I'm trying to figure out what's going on here. And now I'm realizing shower thoughts plus training. Oh, my gosh. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. Go learn all of the fundamental technologies that make Linux kick ass. And when you don't have a lot of time, they also have dim nuggets. These are just like, you know, deep dives into a specific area. Like here's one on managing iSCSI, which you probably are a total expert on and don't need any help, I'm sure. But maybe if you wanted to be set up an HTTP secure proxy over SSH or do some SSH tunneling. And you do want to. I mean, if you don't know how now, just just go learn it right now. Again, these are nuggets. You know, and look at this list. This list is cray. Everything from, you know, Reverse tunnels to setting up Active Directory under Linux. I'm telling you, they've got it all. So go check them out at linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. And a big thank you to Linux Academy for sponsoring the Unplugged program. And I hope you guys go eat a whole bunch of turkey. I know some of you guys will be at least. Go, go put And gals, go put some turkey in your face. So, Wes, kind of a big moment happened this week. Uh, I don't know if you noticed. It might have You might have uh, missed it, but Gnome turned 20 years old this week. 20 years old. That a is huge impressive. Milestone. Yeah, it is, man. It's been with us for yeah. uh, a long time now. And it's brought many interesting fundamental technologies that we now use on the Linux desktop today. So it's kind of a big deal. And there's a lot still coming to Gnome in 20 years. Also, another milestone this week, LibreOffice. Hit a thousand contributors going from September 2010 to October 2015. 
1,000 developers. Uh, and they have some interesting stats, too. You know, they, they pretty much added 60 new hackers a month uh, since September 2010 as a result of a global mentoring effort by some of the project founders. And after five years and 1,000 new developers, they are, you know, sitting in a pretty good position now. And they have wide distribution. They're really well-known. Default install on many distributions. And yet, both LibreOffice and the GIMP have really failed to unseat the industry professional products, like, you know, Adobe Photoshop or Microsoft Office. 20 years of the GIMP. Is it time to just admit that sometimes open source will never be a completely competitive replacement. Wes? Well, I think there's something to that. I think you can also frame it in a couple different ways. And I think one way to look at it is that, yes, I mean, there are there are some reasons that we really should all talk about, uh, you know, that, that maybe this is the case. But I think the other way to look at it is that maybe it's not as competitive. Maybe it doesn't meet the high-end business needs. You know, maybe professionals aren't using it for their day-to-day workflows. But we do have a very successful, you know, free application that is kind of the right of any human to use, right? Like as part of a free society, I think, we need, right, I think we need these essential tools. Yeah. You know, you get a free operating system. You can yep. get this free image editor. Yeah. And, you know, so, if you have a business case, then you have to shell say, out for something more. Let's say after 20 years, GIMP manages to get to 80% of what Photoshop can do. Well, then essentially what you're saying is you flip that around and that means that 80% of humanity now has access to a fairly competent photo editor. Yeah, right. I mean, it doesn't matter what you make, how much resources you have. If you have access to a computer, you can do these things. You can edit your photos. You can touch things up. You know, I I think that's success. I do agree that we need more pressure to reach the higher end features. And I think that we could unseat some of that market. It's obviously not happening. Right? Uh, apparently, I said no at some point instead of GIMP. I have no idea. Who can keep it straight? I was, I was thinking, obviously, obviously, so much of GIMP and GTK are closely connected. But does anybody in the mumble room have any thoughts on here we are 20 years of GIMP, and it's still really not quite there yet for pretty much any professional use? I've, I've, dreamed, the, I've yeah. dreamed for the day that I could switch my mom, a professional graphic artist, to yep, GIMP. I think and we it, all have. And it's not there yet. So uh, Rotten Corp, you and I were chatting about this on the pre-show. What are your thoughts about it, looking at it sort of from a design standpoint? Well, yeah, I'm actually a professional designer, and uh, I use Photoshop. Uh, not in a, in, a, in a shamed situation where I don't want to use Photoshop, but it's the best option, so that's why I use it. And it's not necessarily the fact that it's been, a, you know, they haven't been pushing it enough. It's it's mostly the fact that uh, GIMP's problem is that the people who control the future of GIMP don't care about community input. So there's been multiple forks that have created things like um, layer styles that has been uh, one of the most important things that uh, people wanted from Photoshop in GIMP for a decade that has actually existed since 2008 as a plugin. But GIMP refused to actually look into it at all to give it as a standard. And there's other things like that, like CMYK also exists as a plugin, but again, they refused to put it in the main system. And it took 10 years of people complaining to GIMP to get them to do a single window mode. Hmm. And they don't even do it by default. So majority of people who use GIMP don't even know that there is a single window mode. So it's mostly the fact that this they have a vision. If you don't agree with it, they don't care. And that's what the 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 biggest fundamental of that is the, the leaders of GIMP are not making it um, – they're not making progress 
and they actually they have such a huge market in the open source graphic world there's not really any competitors against hmm. them because they just kind of they kind of take over so i think it's mostly they don't they don't really want to progress it as much as it could be but also they've already taken so much market from away from the the people who could do what the whole community wants that they kind of give up and the developers just go somewhere hmm. else uh, Poby, I, I wanted to hear from you because I wonder – I hear what Rotten Corpus just said and I thought, OK, I think where a lot of us have been is you got to throw everything behind GIMP because so often in the open source community, it's fork, 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 fork. Everybody's got a revolutionary idea and we constantly are rebuilding the foundation and never actually getting to that end user polish. Uh, and and I'm curious what your take is, Poby. Here we are 20 years after GIMP. Have we sort of all been betting on the wrong horse? Is it just something a matter of wait another 20 years? What do you think, Poppy? Uh, so this is a tricky one because I'm not a designer. I open GIMP and I use like three features out of GIMP. And it works for you, make, right? Uh, right. And yeah. I, all I do is set the color levels on a picture of my cat and then unsharp mask and then export it out as a PNG. Yeah. Great and then post, stick it by the Facebook. way, this morning. That was a good one. Yeah. Thanks very much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> he's very photogenic, my cat. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not the best person, but in an open source in general, I think part of the problem is, you know, we just don't have enough people working on the thing. You know, I've mentioned before that the hundreds of people at Samsung who work on, you know, one particular component of their platform or the hundreds or thousands of people at Microsoft who work on one particular component. We've got people who are not necessarily even working on this in full time, but part time. They're doing a job. Then when they get home and uh, you know, put their kids to bed and have made food for the family. Then they start hacking on free software or yeah. after they finish doing their studies, they're hacking on free software. Who are we to tell them that they're not doing a good enough job? And uh, uh, Wimby, I wanted to give you a chance to sound in here too. Do you feel like uh, really in the big picture, uh, GIMP's actually good enough? Well, again, I'm not a professional graphics designer, so you're asking the wrong person. No, actually, I a think... A bit like per Popey, I'm more of a super user because I use four features from GIMP. This is sort of perfect, right? This is sort of Wes's premise is that really if GIMP gets 80% of the way there, then it, that means it appeals to 80% of the users, which is uh, kind of a big deal. So I'm kind of curious to hear your take as a non-professional designer. Yeah, no, it, it does a job for me. Um, I always install it as the go-to um, graphics editor on, on my Linux workstations. And I think most of my difficulty with using GIMPs comes from the um, fact that I don't know how to drive graphics applications yeah. in the first place. <laughs> it's not that That's GIMP fair. is yeah. hard to use. I just don't know how to do it. So I always have to go and Google, you know, the more complicated things. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, yep. But, you know, uh, and the other thing to think about GIMP is if it wasn't for GIMP, we wouldn't have GTK. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And because that was sort of what G, I was implying the earlier. The G in GTK is, right. is GIMP. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's not GNOME or GNU. Right. Yeah, that was what I was getting to earlier. I was sort of implying that. And Rotten, go ahead. As somebody who you know uh, thinks about this probably a little more than most of us do, since we're not super power users in in graphics, uh, you have a chance to respond. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to say that while I think GIMP is atrocious for professionals, not in the sense that it's um, you know I, when I say they're not professionals, so they don't know. It's not that it's bad. It's that it's fundamentally garbage. 
when we when when the methodologies that for normal proper technique of design are impossible to do in your application, it's fundamentally crap. But, you think it'll never? You think it will never serve the role that the professional needs them? No, actually, I don't. I, I I think the fact that it took ten years to just get everything in one window means that the fact that I want non-destructive editing and I want the ability to have CMYK and I want um, I want layer styles and smart objects and all these different things for multiple composites that there is probably minimum 10 years more for one of those. So I, Are you going to pay think, a developer to do that then? No, I, don't, I, have, I have Photoshop. No, but you say, so, I want this, I want that. You can't just no, no, like, rock up to happily, the door, knock on the door of the GIMP developers a, and then say, I, I want these things, you should do it because I want it. I want to, I want to create, I will put, happily put my money in where my mouth is for having, having a, a graphics program that was good. But GIMP is not going to be that because GIMP, the, the, the people who are behind GIMP don't want to be that and have specifically said that they, are, they have no intention of ever actually competing with Photoshop, which is fine. It's their decision. That's fine. But people should stop comparing them because they're not even remotely close. That is However, actually that is actually just to pause you right there. An interesting point. You know, uh, it's so funny what I get crap for on the Linux Action Show. Uh, one of the you things, mean everything? Yeah, one of the things I got crap for uh, this last week's episode is I got excited about PDV uh, um, having a new release. Yes, and uh, see what people did is they assumed I was excited because it was GTK three based and it had you know a nice toolbar. Uh, when in reality, what I was actually excited about was it was introducing a workflow that was actually somewhat representative of a modern video editor's workflow. But people chose to, you know, dog on me for the wrong thing. Uh, and it was what what I took away from that was uh, there are um, a great amount of tools on the Linux desktop right now that we constantly get stuck in the mode of comparing to the proprietary alternative like Final Cut or Adobe Premiere, or in the case of GIMP, obviously Photoshop. And we constantly are doing, well, this is not as good as that. Photoshop is a incredible program with a massive legacy that, that appeals also owns to a niche. It's market. I mean, that's right. the company for designers. So and you know, they have all of the resources. There. Wes, what I've been reflecting on is so on Sunday's episode of the Linux Action Show coming up, because of the holiday, you know, we wanted to talk about some open source projects that we are genuinely thankful for that have improved our lives. Well, that's and, or, a great idea. Yeah, so we're going to do like a thanks to open source. We haven't done it for a few years. And in fact, I'd love to hear the audience's ideas if you want to go to linuxactionshow.reddit.com um, and submit them. But uh, what what one of the things I was reflecting on ab- about all of this really is if GIMP never, ever is a serious alternative to Photoshop for those really high-end power users or designers, that is perfectly okay. When we're talking about something that is open source in GPL, we are literally talking about something that is available to humanity as long as we want to make it possible. Photoshop, even though it's going to be a market-dominant thing for 30, 40 years, it may be around for 60 years, GIMP is literally available to humanity as long as we want it to be yep. available and it can continue to get better. And the thing about that is, is if it is, if it is appealing to 80% of humanity – and it is available to 80% of humanity for as long as they want it for absolutely free if they can just get to the internet, it fundamentally offers something that Photoshop can never offer and can never compete with. 
And when you think about it at that level, I'm pretty damn thankful about that. Yeah. I mean, I know I've definitely needed something in a pinch. I don't have time to, if I was willing to even, you know, pirate or buy or any of the options that people commonly employ. Yeah. Right. Like I can just get GIMP. I know it'll work for what I use it for. I think you just nailed it. I think GIMP just has to continue to iterate. You know, uh, honestly, as long as the project handles new leadership and brings in new blood. That is essential. Yes. They can get another 20 years. And if they can get another 20 years, then they can just slowly continue to iterate. And yeah. It does suck for those of us in 2015 that want it all right now. Yep. But it is something that's going to be available for a very long time, and they can continue to make it better and better and better. And maybe one of the places they'll get to is instead of it becoming commonplace to pirate Photoshop, a proprietary crap application that locks your freedoms down, maybe you just decide to go get GIMP instead. And, and even if they just got – and I think they're damn well close to it. Even if they just got the status of instead of stealing Photoshop, go download GIMP because if, if you're the kind of person that's stealing Photoshop – you probably don't actually need Photoshop to do your job. And so you could probably use GIMP. And, and, and as long as they can get that reputation, which I think they're damn close to already with the common person, then it is actually a very serious thing. I think it's pretty cool. And you know what? Also, we were dogging on LibreOffice. I feel bad about that. If you don't like the way LibreOffice looks, which is kind of where I was going, I think LibreOffice is an awesome project. I hope you guys don't think I was dogging on it. I think it's very awesome. Uh, and I used to work in school districts. Trust me, I understand how revolutionary it is. We have a link in the show notes if you'd like to involve, get involved in maybe sprucing up the look of LibreOffice. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's it's our project, right? It's everyone. So yep. if, if you want it to be something, go help. We got a link in the show notes to help out the LibreOffice project to get another thousand developers. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for tuning this week's episode of Linux Unplugged. We'll be back here on Tuesday. Go to jblive.tv to watch us live, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar, linuxactionshow.reddit.com to contribute. See you next week. And shove some turkey in your face. Oh! Nom nom. Oh, yeah. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. See you next week. Wimpy's encoding questions. If he will answer, I have a very. I'm. I'm going to be very ignorant here. I, I'm very ignorant. I don't understand why Canadians have Thanksgiving. Do, <laughs> do, do, do people? Do people outside of the U.S. also have Thanksgiving? Is it just a no, North America just thing? You. Okay. Just all you. right. So, just what do you, you guys do yeah. on on Thursdays? You just super annoyed by all of us Americans it's a normal talking day. about? Yeah, that yeah. sounds lame. Yeah, that does. Although <laughs> all the all the retailers over here have started have doing Black Friday, Black sure, Friday, yeah, yeah, which is oh. ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, we're that needs about to that. stop. Yeah, I, I apologize. It, I bet it is extremely, extremely annoying. So, okay, so it thank- is because there's never any offers. It's one of these things where everyone says there's these big bargains, and you turn up, and it's like you know a, a bunch of tennis balls and you know, string <laughs> or something. You know what you ought to do they're is doing, you, they're doing it in Germany now too. It's just it's wrong. You it's should so just wrong. come to the U.S. on Thanksgiving. Because here's two things. It, we, we really know how to eat. And man, do we eat. And the other thing is, it's like, besides Christmas, it's like yeah, the really? only other day of the year where everybody's nice. Yep. So if you ever want to come to the U.S. They and will actually, share with you. And you actually want to have a good experience. You come on Thanksgiving, everybody's nice. So it... Uh, Chris will have turkey for yeah, you. Oh, yeah. That's true. That is true. All right. Speaking of uh, coming to the U.S., uh, I'm, I've just booked my ticket to come to scale. Uh, so, are you guys going to go to scale? Are you doing I, that? I, you know, uh, so boy, <laughs> we're actually thinking about not going to scale because fine.
I know. Well, because here, you're uh, going to be there, Popey. The the, uh, the timing in January is is real bad. It's real bad. And the thing is, it's uh, because we do a big show at Linux Fest Northwest, and I have limited funds, uh, so I kind of have to pick and choose. But the other thing is, um, Scale is a great show, and it's a really good show to go to if you don't go to all the other shows. And if you go to all the other shows. Scale is just a bigger version of all the other shows. But the thing about the other shows is they're a little more intimate, a little bit quieter, and a little more focused. So from a term, from terms of content and actual access to the people, we get better results from some of the smaller shows than we do from scale. So I'm still kind of like I'm like 90% decided, but I'm still kind of on the fence about it. Scale's almost getting, I don't know, like overdone i don't know i don't know i don't know i think there's like uh, so we're having a, an UbuCon summit thing for a, a couple of days along with scale and i think there's like 20 or 30 of us flying over there wow. which like never normally happens but there's a whole truckload of canonical people coming over yeah, you know, I'm I'm still considering. I am. It is not part that of that's me. a selling point. Just you know. it would be nice. You know, I hadn't. It would be nice <laughs> to just say hi to people in person. That would be a nice thing. Uh, but so all these other events are really nice, and they're really you know genuine, connected, like personal events. And so, I don't know if 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 uh, if scale was after Linux Fest Northwest. And then I knew how financially devastated I was from Linux Fest Northwest. Then I would be it would be easier to plan for scale because I could just plan accordingly. But because scale comes before Linux Fest Northwest, I can't sacrifice Linux Fest Northwest in the name of going to scale. I don't know. It's a difficult isn't, situation. It is a difficult. Isn't situation. Linux Fest Northwest like on your doorstep? Can't you just like rock up in your trailer? Right, and right. But when you but he has expectations. Well, there. here's the th- well. Like last year, lazy, we lazy. No, no, no. See, last year we <laughs> flew the whole crew in. Uh, and we did dinner and rooms and, you know, we, demands for class. A, a live event. Right. So it was a it was a major expense for the network because, you know, mostly all these people are never actually here. So actually bring every everybody together in one place was actually a rather expensive investment. That was. Uh, oh, oh. So then. OK, so we're going to talk about Solus, which am I saying Solus, right? I, yep. Yeah. Solus. Solus. And how do I say the desktop? Is it budgie? That's what I... Budgie. budgie. As in the bird with wings. Cute little budgie. The, the, like a birdie? 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 Yeah, parky. Birdie? No, the bird, the bird budgie. I don't fucking know about a budgie bird. <laughs> I know about crows and blue jays. I don't know anybody budgie bird. I know bungee <laughs> software. I know bungee software. I know that pretty no, well. Budgie. No. Budgie. I don't know about a budgie. <laughs> I don't know about a budgie. <laughs> this is not a Chris <laughs> list of approved kind of birds. You have in a cage in your house. I don't know like about a, little... a budgie. I, okay, I accept it's a thing, but I've never heard of it before. And I, I have you, Chris, and your lack of knowledge of the world. <laughs> I know, I know. But here <laughs> is the thing. You know what I have heard of a billion times over? Bungie software. Like, haven't you got a bunch of kids? You know what? You're all bunch of kids. That's what it is. Kids and their budgie birds. <laughs> I used to have a budgie. <laughs> Alright, so somebody link me. I want to see what this I want to see what this damn bird looks bird. like. You know what it is, is I just don't give a crap about birds. I mean the birds that fly around are great, but I always feel like the birds in the cage are just super annoying and loud and they poop a lot and they're not all that fun birds? to look what at. 
penguins. No, I'm telling you, birds in the wild are great. That kind of bird I can get down with. But the birds that are just in a cage I, have never interested me at all. I don't. I don't want to spend. Okay, you got. It's some, another name for the common pet. Yeah. Parody. Okay. Yeah, I've seen that ugly ass bird that doesn't. That looks like a stupid bird that poops a lot. Yeah, I've seen that <laughs> bird. I don't know why you. I'm sorry. I can't. I don't know why you name your desktop after that. That bird looks like an asshole. <laughs> well, I made it. Of course, it's going to be an asshole. <laughs> Perfectly done. Perfectly done.